Hello and welcome to Close Talking, the world's most popular poetry analysis podcast from Cardboard Box Productions Incorporated. I am co-host Jack Rossiter-Munley. And I am your other co-host, Connor McNamara-Stratton. And together we read a poem, talk about the poem, and read the poem again. Before we get into today's selection, a quick note that if you like what we do here at Close Talking and have a spare moment... It would mean the world to us if you drop a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Those reviews help boost us up the algorithm and are a great way for us to find new listeners. If you want to get in touch with us, you can find us on so many different social medias. On Twitter, the show is at Close Talking. I am at Jack Rossiter Munn and Connor is at Connor M. Stratton. On Instagram, the show is at Close Talking Poetry. And on Facebook, it's facebook.com slash close talking. We also have a whole website just for the podcast. It is close talking.com where you can find all the past episodes of the show. And Cardboard Box Productions has a newsletter, Unboxed. So if you go to cardboardboxproductionsinc.com, you can subscribe for more behind the scenes stuff on Close Talking and on all the literary and cultural history podcasts that Cardboard Box Productions makes. All right, on with the show. Hello, and welcome to this all-new episode of Close Talking. I am co-host Jack Rossiter-Mundley. And I am co-host Connor McNamara-Stratton. And together we have come to you again to read a poem, talk about a poem, and read the poem again. And today's poem is called A Time. And we are about to have a time talking about a time um, (laughs) (laughs) by Allison Adele Hedgecoke. She's pretty incredible. Um, we could probably spend the entire podcast just talking about her accomplishments and life story because the number of different things that she has done in her life and the number of different fellowships and awards that, uh, she has won are like astounding. Um, just like one mini biographical detail is that she worked as a sharecropper when she was a teenager. Like, that's just one facet of her life. And she is currently, uh, her new book is on the short list for this year's National Book Award in Poetry. It's a book-length poem called Look at This Blue. Allison Adele Hedgecoke has a bunch of different ethnicities in her heritage, including significant indigenous heritage. Um, and she often brings in her identity as an indigenous woman Uh, It often shows up in the perspective she brings to her writing and how she herself contextualizes a lot of her uh, poetry and writing. A poem that I almost selected for us to talk about, but decided not to because it seemed a little bit too similar to what we had just talked about with America Mine was her poem, uh, America, I Sing You Back, where she very directly brings her perspective as an indigenous woman into conversation with Walt Whitman's poem, I Hear America Singing, and Langston Hughes's I Too. So I think that's a, a an example of a poem. If you want to go check that poem out, definitely recommend it. It's a really great poem um, to get a sense of, you know, both reading that poem and reading some of what she herself has said about how she views the writing of that poem and where it sits in conversation with other work, I think gives a, a good idea of how she views the way that she brings her identity as an indigenous woman into her her writing and her craft um but yeah i mean there's there's just so many awards and so many different incredible facets of her biography to to dig into that i think that could be a whole separate podcast or series of podcasts yeah no definitely um yeah the only thing i'll i'll add is that um this poem a time i believe is the first poem of her collection streaming, uh, which came out in 2014. That's uh, a place you can find this poem as well as online and elsewhere. Definitely. And I jotted down the quick little synopsis of that book, which is an award-winning poet turns to her indigenous background to consider loss, memory, and the fate of the planet. So, Mm. yeah, Uh, which I think is evident in this poem. Let's dig on in. Let's read it. Um, for some reason, I have a hard time reading this poem aloud. I don't know why, but we'll see <laughs> if I can read the whole thing. Okay. <laughs> if I can't, don't worry. You'll never know. We'll cut it out. <laughs> All right. This is A Time by Allison Adele Hedgecoke. 
The problem. It's not been written yet. The omens, the headless owl, the bobcat struck, the red wolf where she could not be. None of it done, and yet it's over. Nothing yet of night. When she calls me closer, asked me to bring her crow painting to stay straight across from her feet so she could waken into it, remembering her friend. Of old chief alongside her shoulder, still watching over her just as the mountain had done throughout her Alberta childhood. The Pendleton shroud bearing our braids, her figure in flaming pyre. The cards, the notes, the tasks, the things undone, not done, and she with us, far away, as this has always been and ever will continue. We meet, we leave, we meld and vaporize from whatever it was that held us human in this life. And all the beautiful things that lead our thoughts and give us reason remain, despite the leaving. And all I know is what you know. When it is over, said and done, it was a time, and there was never enough of it. Oof. That is the first time I have successfully read that poem aloud from beginning to end. <laughs> it's a good one. It's a really, really good one. It is. A little narrative rundown, I guess, which seems to be that this is reflecting on the impermanence of life through the perhaps prism lived experience of losing an elder who was a close loved one. A, a close loved one. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it, it has hints outside of that. That is the, the greater perhaps theme is maybe the sense of what is permanent, what is impermanent, what stays, what goes, what form it takes. Um, and you get a lot of call outs to at the beginning of the poem the natural world and this idea of natural life cycles and change and impermanence. And even if the main thrust of the story seems to be about maybe a person that the speaker knows, the poem is using that as a window into larger questions about perhaps global impermanence. Yeah. Um, no, definitely. Yeah. Cause in the beginning the the first stanza is is kind of a little more on the abstract or figurative imagistic um and but then in the second stanza which is just his own sentence none of it done yet it's over there's that sense of the impermanence but also maybe something else has ended um and then this third stanza you get nothing yet of night when she called me closer so then we get this she asked me to bring her crow painting to stay straight across from her feet so she could waken into it remember her friend and so we do get a sense of a, an actual person in that um third stanza and then that kind of continues of old chief alongside her shoulder still watching over just as the mountain done throughout her Alberta childhood, which kind of is more, you get some narrative, like biographical information a little bit, you know, the Alberta childhood and things like that. Um, but then you really get this sense in that next stanza, like the Pendleton shroud bearing our braids, her figure, her figure in flaming pyre. Um, that's a very like clear image of, you know, a kind of, uh, funeralistic ritual of someone who has died, you know, and then you kind of get the, she is with us far away. Those are kind of the moments I think when you get the clearest sense of the, like what's happened in the poem that the rest of the 
contemplation or thoughts that are circulating sort of are about. And I did read in a review somewhere, I it's it's to me it's it's clear as you were saying that it's probably an elder of some kind. A review had called this poem like an elegy for her mother. As someone who doesn't know the poet personally at all or like know that many like specific biographical details, the poem itself doesn't make it clear from my reading that it's that just putting it out there as as something i found in my reading about it and i think your reading of it is is kind of where i was and kind of still am um before i read that basically yeah it's interesting you mentioned that because it's never really explicit in the poem that even that it is an elder but I think it's so strongly hinted towards in so many different ways that that's just at least my mind almost inescapably goes there because you have the, I think in some ways it is the natural world imagery that pushes that into my mind, just because the stuff, the natural world feels like it's on such a different time scale than a human life that for that to be the comparison point and sure you get the explicit call out to the mountains of uh, you know, just as the mountains had done throughout her Alberta childhood and old chief, which even if that's an animal with a shorter lifespan than a human, it's this one stanza where you get old chief at the beginning of it. And then a childhood that is, it feels like hinted at being longer ago, but it's not like, you know, there's an explicit description of this person as having, you know, gnarled hands arthritic with age or something you know it's it's much more gently constructed around that kind of sentiment it feels like it is an elder yeah no that's a good point because it yeah you're right i i kind of had that same reading but you're right thinking about it it's not it's not totally there yeah in the explicit sense it's it's interesting because it in kind of the 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 type of thinking about impermanence like none of it done and yet it's over or like you know it was a time and there was never enough of it it feels it feels like someone not who like like it doesn't feel like someone whose life like died like immensely prematurely if that makes sense um like it's one of those things where it's like that is life Right. Yeah. Well, um, it's also, and it's I think, still not enough. You know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's a really good point. Yeah. It was a time and there was never enough of it. Feels like it is also saying there was a lot of it, but there can never be enough. Um, and I'm also realizing that the line remembering her friend also hints that like someone this person knew predeceased them. Yeah. It at least that's kind of where I go with that line. And that to me also then speaks to at least some age. Obviously you can lose friends at any age, but it feels like, you know, if you want something there so that you awaken to it at your bed, it also has a hint of kind of if not fully bedridden, maybe that's an important location where a lot of stuff is taking place. If you want things brought to you to be there, as opposed to going to them and seeking them out. And you have this, as I said, you know, the, the hint of a friend who maybe predeceased them. It feels like that's that the end of that stanza. And then that next one with old chief and her Alberta childhood feels like where that aspect of it really starts to become clear or mm-hmm. it's, it's so it's um to me i guess like the beginning is so interesting in that it's kind of actually how i'm struggling to form a complete sentence but uh like it begins like the problem then there's like this dash and it's like it's not been written yet the omens um and then we get this list of the different kind of omens in the form of these animals the headless owl the bobcat struck the red wolf where she could not be number one. What, what's a red wolf? Is that a thing? I've, I'm not aware. I'm aware of gray wolves. Red wolves are, are real. That is that something it, they that I are, just, I'm ignorant of? are real. Okay. Tell me yes. about red wolf. First of well, all, I was also ignorant. It's almost extinct at this point. Ah, uh, Canis Rufus. Yeah. Um, 
native to the Southeast U.S. Um, it's kind of in between a coyote and a gray wolf. Okay, cool. Um, I don't know how this got by me. That's really cool. Well, and that also lends an interesting, in terms of seeing this both as maybe an elegy for a lost elder, the kind of climate crisis, natural world aspect becomes really strong if you have something about Red Wolf where she could not be in the context of an animal whose range is shrinking and is nearing extinction, that becomes a really powerful type of omen of it's in a way something now is unnatural that used to be natural. It is, you know, it is a a potentially ominous or noteworthy omen that a red wolf is where she could not be, but in all likelihood where she quote unquote could not be now is where she used to be all the time. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and interestingly, so, I mean, this is, sorry, I was just like reading more about red wolves, but there's, yeah. Teach me about red wolves. Let's go. Well, I, so, I mean, so as of October, 2021, so basically one year ago, there are eight in the wild. Oh, Jesus. And they're all in North Carolina, um, which is, I believe, where they're native to. Um, Just sort of like, yeah, they're mostly brown and uh, reddish. And a, an adult is like 45 to 80 pounds. They live in packs. They were used to be common through the Southeast U.S., um, but then in the 60s, they their populations plummeted they lost a lot of their habitat there was predator control programs um basically then in the 70s they like scientists and biologists and others um captured as many as they could and tried to breed them um and so they were dis- extinct in the wild in 1980. And then by 87, there were enough that they started to try to restore them back to their original range. Um, so the, the, alligator, ugh, the Alligator River National Wildlife Refuge in North Carolina is, I think, where you can, you can find red wolves interestingly though just as like um i believe allison adele Hedgecoke, um she was raised at least partly in north carolina um and you know through her bio she when she was like working in the field she took these community education classes at north carolina state so there is kind of a connection actually um to that animal potentially and like the the actual location of you know um where Hedgecoke was as a as a kid and and where potentially if this is her mother where her mother might have been as well anyway yeah uh but i did not know that there were red wolves and yeah, i guess I, yeah i wasn't clear especially with the headless owl the kind of hint towards the potentially supernatural or you know this notion of omens and what is real. I, yeah, should have looked that up. That's cool. I'm happy to learn about red wolves. Definitely going to try and find out more. That's neat. <laughs> yeah. And I'm sure there, there are like meaning omen meanings associated with red wolves. I don't know exactly what they are. It's interesting too. Also like the bobcat. So, you know, both the headless owl and the bobcat struck are like hurt animals in some ways i mean unless it's a i mean a headless owl it's not hurt but it's (laughs) somehow it lost its head unless it's the type of owl that is doesn't have a head in which case or in a whole nother plane which we are kind of um but in terms of the language i i just i found it very striking because the bobcat struck the struck is the the modifier in the way that the headless is, but the headless is is not a is just a pure adjective, whereas the struck there's the kind of verb like action um, that's happened to the bobcat, um, and 
Yeah, and the, and and also the Red Wolf where she could not be. Yeah, there's there's another kind of like. Yeah, the the Red Wolf, which is already an almost nowhere animal, is somewhere where this person could not be. So there's also a kind of even though the the wolf in this poem isn't like you know struck or headless um there's there's some kind of missingness that's happening with it but so then you have those three right but then it's like it begins with it's just as the strangest like you're kind of thrown into the middle of a of a thought you know the problem but it's like what is the problem well, it hasn't been written yet. And then the omens, like these are a series of fragments and you, it's never like kind of completed, at least maybe over the course of the poem, but like in terms of a sentence. Um, and then you just get none of it done and yet it's over. So you you get this very like from the from the get, you know, before you even really know what's happening in the poem there's all these kind of beginnings and starts and stops and fragments. And also almost contradictory phrasings or at the very least confusing, <laughs> like none of it done and yet it's over, which I have, obviously there's the kind of dark climate crisis reading of that. where like, you know, we, we haven't, given up yet but also we're past a point of severe impact or whatever um but even mm -hmm. in the personal reading of the poem that could be terminal illness it's not done but yeah it's it's over like we basically know that this is kind of the the end of life or it could even be after the moment of death the spirit of the person their impact and what they mean to everyone is not done and yet they're life as we experience it on earth is over yeah and then also it made me think when i got later to the poem of um one of the somewhat near the end but still kind of in the middle the the cards the notes the tasks the things undone not done and she with us far away as this has always been and ever will continue um and and the end of course like it was a time and there was never enough of it. There's this sort of like sense of, you know, oh, there's so many things maybe that she wanted to do in her life or that the speaker wanted to do with her in their lives um, that aren't done, but it's over because just like when people die, it's just it's like not at the end of a story, basically. Um, it's just it happens when it happens. It also feels like uh, along with the last line that kind of echoes that sentiment, like it, it was a time and there was never enough of it going back to things undone, not done. And she with us far away. It also to me feels a little bit like no matter how much got done, there'd always be something else. Like, right. you know, I don't know. I think about this <laughs> when I'm like, carrying stuff you know and you're like oh if i had a third arm that'd be amazing but you know what <laughs> you had three arms you'd be thinking oh if i just had a fourth arm that'd be incredible you know like that's the sentiment i feel where it's like okay if humans lived for 200 years we'd make up a bunch of different stuff that we wanted to still get done in that time you know yeah we all lived as long as aragorn <laughs> <laughs> who's in his late 80s when the lord of the ring happens wow We'd all Just, make up. We'd all fall in love with elves who are immortal. And we'd be like, oh, no, I live to be 200 and something, but she never dies. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> the blood of Numenor flows in his veins, Connor. Oh, my goodness. That's why he's like six foot six. True. But his True. great, 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 a bunch of times great grandfather Elendil, <laughs> oh no, was seven foot eleven. He was almost eight feet tall, Connor. That's, That's... why he was able to fight the Dark Lord in single combat. Except it wasn't quite because he was also aided by Gilgalad. 
king of the elves, who is also like seven feet tall. Jeez. Fertile. Yeah, you don't see all the lore people being like, um, actually, the actor who played Elendil was not a literal giant. So uh, this interpretation <laughs> of the story is invalid. You know, they're just <laughs> mad about all the characters who are canonically described as having darker skin being portrayed by actors with darker skin. Hmm. <laughs> Which parts of the lore do we care about today? Um, Actually, Ian McKellen is not five foot four. He's an unreasonably tall and slender Gandalf. Yeah. Where was that? Where's that attitude? <laughs> these jabronis a lot of jabronis out there Ugh, can you tell i'm mad about the rings of power um i wasn't gonna say anything about it but i was getting that i'm not mad about the show the show was good i'm mad about the people who are mad about it because it's stupid it's a good show it looks amazing and it's good like i know ugh, whatever yeah it's but. just uh god terrible and you know what the thing about <laughs> tolkien this is no this connects back to the poem we're bringing it back back to your regularly scheduled program this unexpected back. message from our non-existent corporate sponsors the rings of power on amazon prime um <laughs> we don't take money from amazon the, the no the connection point for me and i have really been enjoying the rings of power but like the way that magic operates in tolkien's legendarium is that like it's deeply tied into nature and a lot of it is pretty like vaguely defined, but like the elves and people have relationships to nature and natural objects. Like there's the white tree that grows in Numenor that is then planted later in Gondor and like the health of the tree mirrors the health of the kingdom and the elves in their realms, like the way that magic works, they kind of, trees grow in certain ways because they talk to them and certain languages influence the building of the natural world and all of creation grew out of a song and all this kind of stuff and it's like this really interesting meshing and this really interesting view of how living creatures interact and you see that in the rings of power and it does mark it as being really really different from a lot of other fantasy shows that are popular like game of thrones or whatever where it's like ooh, we figured out how to make you know lord of the rings but it's i don't know house of cards or something um like <laughs> yeah. it does like that's like that's not how magic is magic is like a dragon that's gonna burn you or whatever it's like magic as weapons of mass destruction basically <laughs> and there's an element of that in tolkien but like the mm -hmm. The viewpoint, and it is interesting to me to see it because I don't know of a lot of properties that are on that scale, media properties, that take that kind of an attitude towards nature. And in some ways, there are no media properties on that scale because it's the most expensive television show in history. But <laughs> oh <my laughs> having God. that amount of resource put into something that does take this view of the natural world at this moment is pretty interesting to me. That is so I will say I have seen approximately zero amount of rings of power, but I am not opposed to it. But it makes me think of something kind of different, but also similar, which is I was reading this research article today that is called Native American Fire Management at an Ancient Wildland Urban Interface in the Southwest United States. Do not ask me why I was reading that. But so one thing that's kind of interesting is when you think about the climate crisis, one of the threats in the West, one of the like acute threats uh, because of wildfires are these locations because of kind of um, increased population and development is that you'll have these new developments of properties and homes and towns that are very close to uh, like forest wild areas. Um, and those are those kinds of places that are kind of a directly abutting forests are kind of especially, um, at risk for, from wildfires. This was interesting. This made me think of it was that this study sort of looked at the, it's, it was a historical, look 
at the Jemez Pueblo people who were settled in northern New Mexico. Um, and basically, there's a lot of differences, but what they were saying is from this is like from the abstract, but they used ecologically savvy, intensive burning and wood collection. And basically that they lived, this is, you know, many, many, many years ago, they lived in a wildland urban interface, which is kind of the scientific term of it, um, in the same way that um, people now who are kind of moving to these more remote places in the West that are near forests are living in a, quote, wildland urban interface. And it's and and the abstract is saying, like, although this problem seems distinctly modern. Um, if you go back, um, like in pre-colonial times, um, there are like many indigenous groups that were doing that for hundreds of years. Basically, what they're saying is that the ancestors of Native Americans from Jemez Pueblo used ecologically savvy, uh, intensive burning and wood collection to make their wildland urban interface resistant to climate variability and extreme fire behavior. I think this is kind of interesting and connects. So there's obviously differences between the modern towns that are near the forest and this ancient community. The In the, the closing part of this article, they say, two of the important characteristics of the Jemez ancient wildland urban interfaces are, one, it was a working landscape in which properties of the fire regime were shaped by wood, land, and fire use that supported the livelihoods of the residents. Um, and two, that there was much greater acceptance of the positive benefits of fire and smoke. What that kind of means is like, so like one one thing, you know, it's funny because there was this crazy moment. Trump was going on and on about the sticks and the twigs. And that's why the, the forests exactly the raking, forests, clean them up. Yeah. And obviously he was using that uh, to deny climate change. But basically it is the case that since the 1900s, the U.S. government basically banned controlled burns basically ignored the thousands of years that um, indigenous peoples had been using controlled burns as a way to prevent extreme wildfires. One of the results of that is that there was a buildup of, you know, dead and old and dry plants, and that's uh, fuel and tinder for wildfires so that when there is a wildfire, there's so much more fuel already there. So the controlled burn you know, if you can do it safely is a way of kind of culling the fuel so that when there is one that you didn't plan because lightning struck or there was a camper who left their cigarette uh, burning or whatever, there's much less potential for that wildfire to get out of control. Um, obviously, doing that is not a substitute for uh, getting off of fossil fuels, um, but it because we're we're in a time uh, when, you know, a certain amount of climate crisis is baked into the atmosphere, some amount of adaptation is going to be necessary. And so as a result, the the I think it started in the 90s, but but basically the Park Service and the, and the U.S. government slowly has started incorporating controlled burns more although they're still kind of bad at it, I think. Um, but that is kind of more well-known. But kind of going along with that is like, if sort of what they're saying about a fire regime is, you know, and I, I don't know all the complexities of that term, but it's basically like if you have, you know, a basically a dynamic system where like your city is constantly, it's like the same as like a sewage system or like a, electricity system where it's just like you're constantly setting little fires here and there like you use that for to cook your food or whatever not only do you use it as a um like preventative thing but also you're like you're incorporating it into the system of your life and the and the community's life that's like this not only um you know 
like uh, prevents fires. It also like when we do it, we can cook food or whatever. Whereas like to to us, it's like all fire bad, you know, don't set fires. And there's basically this kind of like like very intense. It's like we must not have any any relationship to the land or the natural environment. If it could be supported that those locations today in the modern times are kind of reorienting themselves to be like, okay, you're in a town that's right next to the fucking forest and it's fire season all year round potentially because that's what's that's where we're at. Like, hey, we need to like fireproof your shit and also we need to like prevent these insane wildfires but also like you will be living with fire and so you need to learn to live with that fire and so to me and and it's like and this article is like here's one example of like a group of people that that um were able to live with fire in a relationship with fire in a way that worked for a stretch of time, like a long stretch of time. What this is making me think of, which is so interesting, this notion of, as you're describing, relationship with the land, basically, or with the natural processes of an environment. The Salton Sea in California, which is one of the most polluted lakes in the country, number one, there's this whole narrative that the only reason it exists is because they were the digging canals in the early 20th century and the canal overflowed and that's technically true but also that basin filled up and drained many many times and native peoples told folks who were coming out there about this they were like yeah sometimes this floods like this is a flood zone and they had for centuries these groups had been moving between being like a water-based people and then not having water anymore. And so you have these elements in their mythology of like water birds and all this stuff that aren't necessarily around all the time, or it would, you would come upon these peoples during a time when that lake wasn't there. And you'd be like, why do they have water bird mythology? It's like, what's up with this? Oh, because sometimes there's a giant lake here, you know, <laughs> and sometimes that lake then goes away. But of course, once the Salton Sea happened, now it's like this giant crisis to figure out what to do with it. And people moved in and they won't, you know, there's a lot of reasons why it would be unreasonable to then tell them to leave because they're families who've lived there for, you know, decades at this point. Um, but it's really dangerous and it's really salty and it's killing all of the waterfowl that are there, but also they tried to turn it into Palm Springs and whatever. And it's this different <laughs> mentality about a relationship to a land or a place of, are you going to learn about what that place is and then be in relationship with it? Or are you going to try and just like bludgeon it into being what you want it or need it to be at a certain point in time? What I think is so interesting and what I think is a great and fascinating move that this poem makes is the relationship that it describes is that of a person. And I think as people, we are much more on board with being in these kind of give and take relationships with other people. And we are also much more on board with understanding the impermanence of a person's life because we see it happen. And on the geological and global scale, we don't see it happen in the same way. And so narratives that are essentially domination narratives or extraction narratives or complete reimagining narratives that we would never dream of of trying to actualize on like a human being we know or if someone tried to would immediately be identified as highly dysfunctional or abusive we are perfectly comfortable putting onto land but what you get described in this poem is a real relationship with a human being with a very cyclical or at the very least impermanent understanding of time and relationship. And those call outs to the natural world really do bring like, what are those practices that build a healthy relationship? Can that be taken from just the individual and the interpersonal into potentially the natural world. 
And, and that I think is really fascinating. And I think that's part of what's so effective about the poem and why it works on both of those levels. Yeah, that's what that is. Um, I really love that. Yeah. One, one thing that I don't know if this directly connects, but I sort of feel like it does. And this is maybe a bit of a jump, but um, here we go. Is that one, one thing that I was sort of, sort of maybe obviously, but also kind of consistently thinking about was, you know, the poem is called like a time. Um, and then at the end, you know, when it is over said and done, it was a time and there was never enough of it. Um, and I was like fixated on the a, like the, a time part, you know, in a lot of ways, it makes sense in this sort of if you're thinking about the articles of of speech that you can use, you know, a time, the time, this time, that time, depending on the article, the word that you choose, um, you're giving a certain emphasis or non-emphasis or like texture to the thing that you are describing um, in this case time and so like the time or the time is a very this is it you're like holding it up above all things or at least that's like one way that it is it's like this was the time um and all other times are not the time um and like this time or that time, it's like there's one of these terrible um, Greek words that I learned in college and it shouldn't be in my head, but it's like called like a day. It's a deictic word, which just means it's like a point. It's pointing. So you're like this time. It's like this one over here. And what that does is it's like or that time, that time over there, is that it it creates a kind of, um, uh, it places it somewhere. And it also kind of creates an assumption of an understanding potentially with the person you're communicating with. Like if you're sitting in a room and you're like this bowl, you know, and you point to the bowl that you're pointing to, like, um, they're they follow your hand and they're like ah yes this bowl um whereas if you're like pointing to the bowl and you say a bowl then you're like okay you're you're now <laughs> teaching me what that word means <laughs> you're or you're like this is what a bowl is or something like that um so anyway by going with a time it's on one level it's downplaying kind of or like underemphasizing this time that's being spoken about in a way. Um, and it also is kind of, it's unclear the relationship that it has to other times in a way or other places or other things like, like, whereas like this time you can kind of, jostle this time against other times you know what i mean whereas like a time it's just kind of there and it's floating you know um and yeah and so i was kind of like puzzling about it in some ways and in some ways it made a lot of sense because it was just kind of you know there's this there is this sense of we meet we leave we meld and vaporize from whatever it was that held us human in this life, um, which is just an amazing sentence. And it, it is that kind of impermanence. And when you when you put it in the in the kind of grand cosmic sense of time and life, like one person's life is a time. You know what I mean? That was kind of the first part that I was kind of gleaning. But then when you were talking about that sense of relationship with people, it is also that 
that re- that kind of flu- more fluid relationship that I think a uh, time has with the rest of things, you know, and 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 there is that sense throughout of the poem too, where you know, like the things undone, not done, and she with us far away, and this has always been and ever will continue. It's like you read that, and it's like, where are we? I do not know. It's like undone, not done. It's like okay, those are two different things, but they're quite similar. She's with us, but it's like very far. So maybe she's dead already, but this has always been the case. And then it's going to continue. And so it's like this kind of like whirlwind of space time. Um, And then you get this like we meet, we leave, we meld and vaporize. And it's like vaporize is like so wild and intense. And um, and but what that does also is kind of it does jostle you into the the anus like the anus of the time i guess the um, uh, the what now of the, of the time the a- <laughs> and the it the is what now? <laughs> it's so hard to say a all right let me just tell you one thing uh-huh. um a is for uhness okay so it's uranus so shut your face um l o l yeah um i don't know r o f l m a o bringing it back i love it a um yeah, I think you're right that it sets that up really well. And also that a time is such a specific way to describe that because it does, it feels like particularly in the context of the poem, the way that it's set up, it strikes the exact right. We often talk about that balance between specific and not specific. <laughs> like how do you get specific enough to be connective and impactful, but also perhaps universal enough to make your broader thematic point and a time is the exact right phrasing of that for the tone and relationship the poem wants to have between the specific story it's telling and the larger point that it's making. Yeah, no, absolutely. And then it's also the other thing that's so profound and I think gets to what you were saying about um, the relationship that you can have with someone and also like with the world is like, saying it was a time it's like the it is like the person kind of like saying it's not like so they're not saying it was you were a time or it's like there was a time when you were on earth basically you know and there was not enough of that um but the kind of like but putting putting it rather because I think so often and not like entirely, but very often when we think about um, or when we encounter works that are like processing grief or loss, um, it's like you, this body and person are no longer here and it's very spatial, but then like also you're gone um and there was the time before you were gone and the time after but like saying it was a time it's like actually it's like the i don't know it's like the it emphasizes to me it emphasizes the relationship between the speaker and the her because what it's focusing on is not like her and the speaker it's like the time during which both were alive together. It's, you know? yeah, it feels like it's that relationship time that's getting described. Because also just like yeah. colloquially, we said it at the beginning of the podcast, like, <laughs> oh, we're, we're going to have a time together. It's going to be a great time. You know, that phrasing is embedded in the way that we talk about those kind of relationship times or it's like, what's a good time? Not what is the time? Yeah. You know, it's it's the a phrasing, even if there's another word in between that often comes up just in spoken familiar time stuff. Yeah, I really agree. Yeah. And it and it it also gives it a 
there's like a, a quiet lightness to it in the phrasing of it like that, because it's, it is conjuring that kind of like, we're going to have a time or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, that would be a great title for a book, a quiet lightness. <laughs> I feel like that's a, a poetry collection waiting to be written. <laughs> well, cause it's, it's, it's a heavy poem in a lot of ways and it's, yeah. it's very serious, but, but, having it at the end saying it was a time um and and sort of mimicking that or echoing that that colloquial phrase so perfectly um yeah <laughs> it's light but in a quiet way yeah which i love um should we read it again yeah let's hear it again This is A Time by Allison Adele Hedgecoke. The problem. It's not been written yet. The omens, the headless owl, the bobcat struck, the red wolf where she could not be. None of it done, and yet it's over. Nothing yet of night. When she calls me closer, asked me to bring her crow painting to stay straight across from her feet, so she could waken into it, remembering her friend. Of old chief, alongside her shoulder, still watching over her just as the mountain had done throughout her Alberta childhood. The Pendleton Shroud, bearing our braids, her figure in flaming pyre. The cards, the notes, the tasks, the things undone, not done, and she with us, far away, as this has always been and ever will continue. We meet, we leave, we meld and vaporize from whatever it was that held us human in this life. And all the beautiful things that lead our thoughts and give us reason remain despite the leaving, and all I know is what you know. When it is over, said and done, it was a time, and there was never enough of it. All right. The time has come, Connor. The time has come? The time has come. No, it is a time. A time for recommendations. What are you reading? What are you watching? What are you listening to? How are you spending your time with various media enrichments? Well, you know, it is that time. It's the most spectacular time of the year. Yes, that is true. That is very true. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness, Jack. Well... What do I even have to say? What do I even have to say? Oh, golly, golly. You know what? I have to give... This is um on par for... um I think something that I recommended last time, but in my quest for not... Uh, politically depressing podcasts. Um, I've gotten recommendations from friends and um, I've been enjoying one in particular and shout out to Danny for the recommendation. Thanks, Danny. Um, Keep Connor on his reasonable diet of political content. Thank you, Danny. Um, I actually feel like you would love this and you may already know about it, but it's called Ologies. Um, no, I don't. Tell me about Ologies. I'm writing it down. It is exactly what you would think. It is a podcast that is about the many, many ologies of the world. It's basically sounds incredibly political. (laughs) No, no, no. It's mostly science. 
So oh, like phrenology, oncology, yeah. geology, ah, ecology. I like are, this. I like this. There's fun ones like like um diplopodology, which Whoa, is Oh, is that the study of the diplodocus? It is not. Oh. Um millipedes and centipedes. Heck yeah. I know somebody who did that. Wait, really? A, a friend of mine. Yes, I stayed with them when I visited Ireland. My friends, Ellie and Wilson. And Wilson got really into collecting local millipedes. And guess what? He actually was the first person to record a sighting of this specific species of millipede in Ireland for like a very long time. People thought it was extinct in Ireland. And he found one and he was like, look, it's not extinct in Ireland. And there's really active online communities of that ology. Whoa. Yeah. He had all these millipedes and little jars in his freezer. It was so cool. That is wild and very cool. It well, was amazing. Yeah, that is amazing. Um, Yeah, no, it, it's it's great. I've only listened to a few, but I'm like hooked. I obviously started with the most. It's like baby steps for me. So I started with critical ecology which is the intersection of social systems and in the environment, which is in so you started with the most political. <laughs> line. You're like, I know Danny's trying to keep me, keep me away from the politics. He can't do it. I'll listen to his podcast, but I'm starting with this one. Gotta ease I, had, my way in. I had to listen to. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I know. I know. I'm so uh, sorry, Danny. Um, no, no, it's good. It's good. And it was very awesome and it was a little depressing, but it was fascinating. And there's just amazing. I mean, they do ones on tortoises. They've got ones on otters. There's corals, flies, sleep. Um, Just amazing things. And um, yeah, she just keeps them coming. And you get to learn all about it. And then she interviews someone who's kind of a an expert in the field. Um, and yeah, I recommend it a lot because it's it's a good way to nerd out. It's a very yeah, and to me, so like one thing that in my day job where I edit school library books, I've I've become reacquainted with the fun of like learning random things um Welcome and to my world <laughs> i know which it has been step in it's nice it's so fun and it and it the thing is that it's hard i find it hard i really like i think it's me but i like when it's like when you can get someone who has the expertise and you can convey that in a way that i can understand who knows very little about millipedes, except that I do not like them in my bathtub. <laughs> um, oh, God, no. Ugh. Yeah, they got to go. And going to be in the house. They need to be in little jars in the freezer. Exactly. And so it's just it's like one of those things where it's 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 a little it's like, I mean, I guess I could be just I mean, sometimes I do like surf Wikipedia and like, oh, what's this about? But this is just like it's got the it's got all the great greatest parts about a podcast of just that like amazing conversational uh like aspect and then it's just you get to learn about um it's just like a lovely deep dive into some some very cool science um and sometimes not science but mostly science that's really cool yeah so ologies with ali ward that's what I recommend. I'm definitely checking that out because that sounds like exactly the kind of podcast I need in my life. <laughs> it's definitely up your alley. Um, also up your alley is something I don't know yet. What has been up your alley <laughs> lately? Um, a lot of different stuff. Obviously, as mentioned, it's the most spectacular time of the year. Uh, and so yes. number one, just a quick recommendation is a bunch of the great old universal monster movies are free on 2btv.com, which you get ads, but it's free streaming. 
And so if you want to watch Dracula or Frankenstein, the mummy, Bride of Frankenstein, Creature from the Bra- Creature from the Black Lagoon, they are all on Tubi and they are I can tell you because I recently watched them yet again. They are as good as everybody. Like they are masterpieces. They're so good. Oh my God. When Dracula is hanging out and everybody's chatting and they're like, Ooh, you bought Carfax Abbey. I assume you'll be doing quite a few repairs. And he's just like, <laughs> No, I will not be doing repairs. It reminds <laughs> me of the broken battlements of my home in Transylvania. <laughs> it's like, yeah, this guy is totally normal. Very cool and good and awesome that this normal man is like, I will not repair crumbling stonework. I feel very at home in the damp halls. The sun? What is this sun you speak of? I have not seen the sun for many years. And, but it's like, but it's not, I think it really works. It's so, it's so good. It's so good. Bela Lugosi is so good in that movie. Um, the mummy Boris Karloff is like this great unsettling weird old mummy dude who's hanging around looking at people and getting them to do his bidding by staring at him real well. It's, it's so good. Um, they're all amazing. I love it. Oh yeah. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. I love it. Looking for something to listen to the Australian band (laughs) radio Birdman. Oh boy. Hell yeah, Radio Birdman. <laughs> they are like kind of a proto punk slash hard rock band from the 70s in Australia. Um yeah, one of my favorite recent discoveries musically. I have been reading, sadly, incredibly relevant, uh, Black Earth, The Holocaust as History and Warning by Timothy Snyder, which does an Ooh. incredible job explaining the ideologies behind the political movements of Mm. the thirties. Um, and also like the way that Zionism was happening at the time and the way that attitudes towards Jewish people were different in different countries, but then ended up kind of getting subsumed under Hitler's Nazi ideology. That was one almost entirely based on racial supremacy Um, But it's also just like incredibly well-written. I wrote down a a little quote from it about uh, Poland, because one of the points that he makes is that for any of the Holocaust to happen, like the actual, even though the Nazis were all about the state, they had to actually destroy all of these states to make their violence and extermination possible. But check this out. This is a taste of his skill as a writer. The destruction of the Polish state was accomplished in both ink and blood. As the lawyers worked their typewriters, the murderers worked their guns. Damn. Yeah, which is both like great writing, but also a really chilling and accurate description of how Nazism and the genocides happened, which is just like this really gross bureaucratic system that gets set up where a bunch of folks can just be like well you know i was the lawyer who drafted the legal documents that partitioned poland between hitler and stalin like i didn't Mm. kill anybody i was just doing my job and that also leads to my last recommendation i've got a bunch because i've been doing a lot i guess um but my last recommendation even if you're not a star wars person and or watch Andor because it is amazing. Whoa. If you want really good looking Star Wars, if you want really well told stories in Star Wars, if you want a show that makes it clearer than ever that in the original Star Wars trilogy, the Empire was the United States. <laughs> Check out Andor because, oh, oh my goodness, it was already doing that in the first episodes. But in the last two, Andor gets arrested for doing basically nothing and sent to prison where he Mm. has to work for the Empire. And it is 100% if you are thinking critically about policing and incarceration, watch Andor. Damn. It's so good. So that's my 
my bunch of recommendations. Weird old horror movies, an Australian band, and books about the Holocaust and Star Wars. Perfect. That's 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 all I could ever ask for. The most spectacular time of the year, literally and figuratively. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Check out all that stuff. And, you know, maybe maybe most of all, listen to ologies. (laughs) <laughs> I feel like mine might have been a lot. What As about well. vampirology? Is that a thing? Yeah, that's the latest episode. Is it really? Yeah. That's awesome. Indiana University professor of Slavic and Eastern European culture, yes. Jeff Holdeman. Oh, Holdeman. Holdeman. to my veins. I want this. <laughs> Who teaches the course, The Vampire in the European and American culture. Vampire. Vampire. So, yes, if you are intrigued by both of our recommendations, check out Ology's latest app on Vampirology. Bringing it together. That's so cool. Yeah. Amazing. Spooktacular. It's the most spectacular time of the year. Hey, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. Those reviews help us with the algorithm and are the best way for us to find new listeners. Do you have thoughts about this poem? Or is there a poem or poet you'd like us to cover on a future episode? We would love to hear from you, and there are tons, tons of ways to get in touch. Yes, you can send us an email to closetalkingpoetry at gmail.com or find us on Twitter. I'm at Jack Rossiter Munn. Connor is at Connor M. Stratton. And the show is at Close Talking. On Instagram, we are at Close Talking Poetry. And we are on Facebook at facebook.com slash close talking. And speaking of all of those many and varied social media platforms, a very special thank you to our incredible social media manager, Corey China. Woo woo. Thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next time. See you next time. Come back again. Please come back just one more time. Door is always open. Okay, bye. See ya.